So, so this morning I got here and I and I turned on the fan and opened the doors, and then just like, please God, don't let us cook, because I because I heard about last week that it was so hot in here. Uh, we actually have somebody who's looking at trying to get his an air conditioner. Just well, it's 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 our Indian summer, the end of the year, where like seriously, our summer is like September, October, first part of November. And that's our summer, and it gets sometimes it gets so hot. <sighs> Hi, I'm back. Yay. Don't say yeah, yeah. You haven't heard this morning's message. It's long and boring. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you something as we before we start and do this is uh, on October second we're gonna do a four week thing called Element U for Element University. Uh, we're gonna do these things twice a year. In the fall we're gonna try to do four weeks so they're short because after four weeks on a Wednesday night you guys just peter out you lose interest so we're gonna make them short. So we got four weeks starting on October second. In the spring we're gonna do six weeks so four in the fall, six in the spring. What we want to do is educate you guys about some things. So the one starting October second is going to be called coherence theory. You're like, what does that even mean? Excellent. You're going to learn stuff. And that, that's our whole point. We want to teach you some stuff that maybe you don't already know and have you walk out of here going, oh, my head hurts because I learned too much. Uh, the coherence theory, over four weeks, we're going to teach you how to look at our culture, why our culture does the things that it does. Sometimes if you watch the TV and you're like, what in the world is going on with our country? You can actually come to this class and you'll understand more of why our culture and society is going the way that it is. Because there's very clear indicators of what it is and what that looks like. And we want to share those things with you. So it's going to be over four weeks. Uh, I think we'll have a little bit of fun doing it. We'll give you a lot of books. Uh, not give you. You have to pick them if you want to. But a list of books you can read if you'd like. Uh, some articles you can go to and look at. Uh, just all of these things to help educate you more. So that's going to be our fall. Our, our spring one is going to start in March. And it's going to be... Uh, about apologetics, and so we're going to give you six weeks, six weeks of apologetics. That'll be really fun as well, but just think about, okay, October 2nd, we have full children's programs available for this. We're doing it right. Apparently, that, that, that's right. So the last couple of weeks, uh, I had some substitute teachers. Apparently, Mike Harmon wants you to call him Mr. Harmon. I listen to his message, and I keep hearing, call me Mr. Harmon. I'm like, wow, okay, Mike, whatever. So... Uh, <laughs> So if you are new in the last two weeks, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. Uh, and YouVersion, click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You get the sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with what we're talking about today. So stand with me with reading to God's Word. We will get started. And again, I haven't been here a couple weeks, so I may be talking really fast, and I just don't notice because when you're a foreign country and you, and you talk fast, they don't understand you anyway. So, this is Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand what uh, judgment is and what we are called to and what we are not called to, that we'd be a people who properly reflect and honor you in the things that we say and the things that we do and how we discern and make distinctions and things around us. So help us be those people who know you better and better by following the words that you have spoken. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in the series called The Stupid Summer. Uh, It's 13 weeks that we have set aside to remind us how stupid we all are. 
And I know if you have kids, you tell your kids, don't call someone stupid. But, you know, as Christians, we have to realize many times we are stupid, even if we don't say it out loud. We're just, we're just dumb. Not saying it doesn't make it untrue. So why are we stupid? Because we believe a lot of ludicrous things today. Uh, many times someone will get on TV and they will mock Christianity for some stupid belief. And I will get an email or a phone call and they will say, why do Christians believe this? And I will say, we don't or we shouldn't. And they'll say, well, but Bill Maher or MSNBC or Dan Brown or somebody, you know, said this. Here's always my question that I ask people when they say that. Why do you trust a non-Christian to tell you what a Christian believes? On the other side of that, why do you trust somebody who doesn't believe the Bible is an authority to be an authority on the Bible? Why do you trust that? And sometimes even worse for me is when Christians believe some crazy thing like, God helps those who help themselves, and I explain to them how that's not in the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach the exact opposite of that, and then they want to argue with me the whole time about it. I'm like, no, you just... So this morning, as, as we head through this, there's going to be a lot of information, a lot of things we talk about, and I hopefully, if you call yourself a Christian, this will be very practical for you. If you're not a Christian, hopefully this will give you uh, maybe a little more of definition of how Christians should actually be living their lives. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone amongst you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. You know what that word folly could translate as? It could translate as foolishness or stupid. Okay, it's not that the you know people are stupid. We're not trying to put anybody down, but sometimes, again, we believe some stupid things, and they have consequences for our lives. And today we're going to talk about this idea of judging. A great way to get any non-Christian to try and quote the Bible is to call something a sin because they will fire back with, the Bible says not to judge. It's like a pot smoker's two verses. They don't know where they are, but they can remember them. Every seed-bearing plant is good, and don't judge. That, that's all they got. <laughs> Open to Matthew chapter 7. I mean, if you talk about certain lifestyles today or critique a belief system or a world religion, criticize a behavior that isn't universally condemned by our culture, like, I don't know, Miley Cyrus on the MTV Music Awards or something like that, you just wait for a little bit. Someone will quote Matthew 7 and 1 and say, judge not. Not that they know it's Matthew 7 and 1, not that they can find it if their life depended on it, but that's what they quote. And most people don't even know that that is quoted out of context. Do you know this whole idea that Jesus had forbidden his followers to judge? That is a myth. That's why it's our stupid summer topic for the day. Sometimes if you refuse to make judgments, that's actually a sin. Because Jesus does cause you to make certain judgments. And and Jesus did it all the time. And I know you're not Jesus. Trust me. I know you're not Jesus. Okay? But he asks us to do the same. And sometimes if we refuse to judge certain things and make distinctions about certain things, it will lead to costly spiritual consequences in our lives. And also in the lives of those around us. Around us that we refuse to hold accountable and people will need to have some time their sins actually pointed out. I had someone send an article to me a couple weeks ago about how uh, the Pentagon sent out this memo and they labeled evangelical Christians as an extremist group. I'm like, what? Do you think you don't get the right to judge that? Like, I can't say if that's right or wrong. Maybe you have a friend who they're addicted to pornography or addicted to video games. You don't have a right to step in and say, hey, you know, you need to straighten out your life and that's Wrong? Let me help you do something like that? You totally do. See, Jesus didn't say, judge not, followed by a period, hey guys, let's go get lunch. That's not what he did. He said, judge not, and he follows it with the clarification of what types of judgments to make, when to make them, and how to make them. In Matthew chapter 7, if you read it in context, it's not a prohibition against judging. It's a stern warning against judging improperly. 
It's judging him properly. And so immediately after Jesus says, judge not, he goes on to say, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give your, all of your good things to the dogs. And so you've got to make some judgment. What's a swine? What's a dog? You've got to judge between those things. In Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, if you're there, Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You've got to make a judgment about that. You've got to think, okay, so, so who's a ravenous wolf? You'll recognize them by their fruits. So you're supposed to judge their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Jesus, what he wants you to do is carefully inspect the spiritual fruit of anybody who claims to speak for God. And you reject those who bear bad fruit, and you listen to those who bear good fruit. Now, why do so many of us believe that Jesus doesn't want us to judge? Because it's a failure to read the scriptures in context. And this is kind of what this whole stupid summer series is about, understanding the scriptures in context. And the second reason is our natural tendency to interpret the ancient words in this ancient world through our modern-day culture, especially with this highly-valued trait today that we have that's called tolerance. Tolerance. Today, tolerance is mostly defined as allowing others to believe and act in ways that we don't agree with, and we must also support their right to do so and refuse to judge their point of view and actions altogether. And so as a result, in most circles, criticizing someone's beliefs or moral choices is considered to be a sign of arrogance or ignorance. You can pick, take your pick between the two. And they say, well, Jesus says judge not, so that means you're just wrong all around. But there's a problem with that. That's not what Jesus actually said, and it's not what Jesus actually meant. He not only told his followers to judge, he gave them instructions for how to judge properly. And he did a lot of judging himself because Jesus is the judge. Here comes the judge. That's, that's Jesus. All right? And don't misunderstand me on this. You know, I think that tolerance is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Rightly understood, it's a great thing. I think it's part of, a, of the fabric of any diverse society. It has to be part of it. It's a trait every Christ follower should strive for. But tolerance no longer means what it used to mean. Tolerance once meant you granted other people the freedom to be wrong. In the 60s and 70s, you, you had uh, the, uh, you know, all, the, all the hippies and you know, far left-wing liberal people. They're like, we just want to debate in a dialogue. And government's like, you're not getting a dialogue? You're crazy hippies. And it's like, we just want to debate in a dialogue. Now those same people are in charge of the universities and in charge of most of the government. And the other side's going, we just want a dialogue. And they're like, oh, we don't want to have a dialogue with you. And it's just gone the other way. It, it's like it goes one way but not the other. See, tolerance doesn't preclude a critique or a criticism. It offers an evaluation in the spirit of grace and humility. That's what it's supposed to do. And that is a long way from our modern definition of tolerance as affirming everyone's right to do whatever they want, no matter what it is. Our definition of tolerance has become so widely adopted that even most Christians believe it's inappropriate to critique or criticize the religious beliefs or the moral standards of others. And I'll tell you, culture, though, is always changing. It never stays the same. I mean, 10 years from now, things aren't going to be the same as they are today. This is why we focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is unchanging. It stays the same. It is, it is so hard to get outside of the values and viewpoints of a culture in which you live. I mean, if you doubt me, look back to what you thought was hip and cold 15 years ago. Look at the pictures of you in your high school yearbook. Let me, let me show you some pictures of people in high school yearbooks. Here you go. I don't know who that is. Sweet. This is Manette Shaver. Cindy Lou Who. All right, this is Paul. Huh? Nice, right? All right, who's next? Oh, this is Jonathan Whitaker. He's the one in the middle. What a cool look, right? It's awesome. All right, let's... Oh, this is Jennifer. This is she, Jennifer does our women's ministry. She's the one on the right. Look at those socks. Sweet. 
All right, here's, what's this one? Oh, okay, Eric and Christy Morangi. Oh, how sweet. High school dance, mullet, and feathered hair. And, yeah, here's the best one. Here's the best one. Okay, this, this dude on the left right here, that's James Fairfield. Huh? Huh? Eddie Barrett looks like a girl, right? And then back here, this third one over, that's the guy who did announcements this morning. That's Luke. Crazy, right? I mean, if you look at all these pictures, all it does is tell of our herd instinct. And what's our herd instinct tell us today? That we have no right to judge other people's beliefs and moral standards. We don't get the right to do that. See, today, we now even have this thing that people are going along with that, you know, you can have two equally opposing views, and they can both be right at the same time. Why do we think that's right? See, this is an idea, it's accepted nowhere else in the world. Only in the moral and spiritual realm do we say, oh yeah, these two diametrically opposed views can be the same. It's all craziness. Imagine you had an engineering student, goes up to his teacher to hand like in his final. And the teacher goes, this math is terrible. And the kid says, well, it feels right to me. Do you want that kid to be designing the bridge you drive on or drive under? No. Imagine you go to your doctor and the doctor comes up with a handful of pills and he says, here, these are purple and green and blue. Some are fat, some are skinny. Just take whichever ones feel right. You're going to be like, I need the one that helps me. I need the one that works for me. That's that's what we want. In every area of life where we can test the outcome, we know some things work and some don't. Some answers are correct and some aren't. And if we were forbidden to make judgments about moral and spiritual things, we'd have no way to distinguish between truth and error. And so we need to learn how to judge correctly precisely because Jesus told us to. Because Jesus told us to. Jesus told us how to judge because some beliefs are true and some are actually false. Some actions are right and some are wrong. And I was talking to someone about this recently. And they, and they brought up the whole story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. If you don't know the story, there's a woman, she's caught in adultery by these guys. They bring her to Jesus, throw her on the ground and say, Jesus, what do you say we do? The law says we stone her. What do you think? And so Jesus says, whoever among you is without sin, he can cast the first stone. And so everybody kind of drops their stones and walk away because everyone knows that none of them are actually without sin. I kind of worried if Jesus did that today because the way we teach our kids, oh, you're perfect and wonderful. You don't sin at all. I think some kid today might be all, boop, I'm sin free. I, I can totally see it happening. But anyway, so they, they all start dropping the rocks and, and they start walking away. And, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? Says, no one condemned you. And she says, no one has condemned me. He says, then neither do I. And so this guy says to me, see, I'm like Jesus. I don't judge. I don't condemn. But there's a big problem there. It's because Jesus actually did judge the woman in john 8 11 he says neither do i condemn you but then he goes on and he says go and from now on sin no more that's a judgment he called what she was doing sin he didn't ignore her adultery he didn't say well that might work for you so you know that's okay i'm not going to label it anything but you know if that works for you great he doesn't do that he said it's sin no question but then he confronts her with grace and with truth And if we as a people refuse to label the behaviors Jesus called sin, sin, you know, we are disagreeing with Jesus. We're not actually following Jesus. So the proper course of action, it's not to stop judging things around us. It's to learn how to judge properly in line with the standards and principles of the scriptures and that Jesus taught. And there's some people I know, they know, they get this. They're like, I know it's okay for me to judge. And they judge everything around them and they just ruin it because they're not judging correctly. And so I want to give you three things about how Jesus said to judge correctly, how we are supposed to do this. And the first one is this. You judge as you want to be judged. You judge as you want to be judged. One of the first keys to judging appropriately is to remember the standard you use against someone else is to be the one you want God to use for you. 
Matthew 7, if you're still there, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So by you know, having the same judgment, it doesn't mean that we stop judging or making distinctions because we don't want anybody to judge us. It's like, oh, that seems to be the, the major motive behind don't judge me you know, so I don't have to feel bad about anything. What it means is you judge with extreme caution and extreme clarity. And so how do you do that? First off, you beware of balancing the scales. Beware of balancing the scales. We all know firsthand how easy it is to condemn something and somebody else that we struggle with the most. In fact, I think these are the places that we tend to judge most harshly. And it really makes no sense because it seems like hypocrisy would be hard to live with. But apparently it's not because we all do. You know, this is why we call it balancing the scales. It's crusading against a, a sin or a, or a struggle or a cause. You crusade against it because if you loudly condemn it, well, then you know, it t- makes it for you secretly doing it. Like you're trying to convince God you're still on his side by totally condemning this thing on the other side. I'll give you a big example. Okay? Years ago, there's a guy named Jimmy Swaggart. He is a southern hellfire brimstone preacher, gains a huge television following in the 80s, and he had a disdain for what he would call the evils of sex. Now, he preached against anything and anyone that he saw as a purveyor of temptation. And yet, in the end, he is busted for a series of what are called voyeuristic, meaning he liked to watch meetings with the local prostitute. See, he hadn't been really been preaching to his congregation. He'd been preaching to himself. And according to the words of Jesus, he'd been condemning himself with every sermon that he gave. Uh, I used to work with youth a lot, and, and I could tell you stories. I won't, but I could tell you stories of a ton of moms who would bring their daughters to me and say, you need to fix my daughter. I'm like, well, how do I do that? She dresses like a slut. You need to make her stop. She's dating all these boys that I don't like. You need to, need to make that stop. And I will tell you, most of the time on the backside, the mom is the one with the problem because the mom was trying to dress like they were 16 years old, and she, they're trying to get all their daughter's friends to like her. And they started talking about all their wild past and all the things that they did, like it was a badge of honor. And she wanted to rail against the things that she herself struggled with. And this happened multiple times. And please don't think when I rail at you for something like that, it's something I'm secretly doing, because I don't struggle dressing like a 16-year-old girl. I may be built like one, okay, but I don't struggle dressing like one. So beware of balancing the scales. Second thing is beware of overprotection. Beware of protection. Sometimes we will condemn the sins that we have struggled with in our past and desire to protect those that we love. We don't want them to endure the same pain, the same heartache that we've gone through, so we step up with rhetoric. We rail against the sins that cause us the most trouble. Uh, a lot of parents, they will have their own demons they went through, and they will start placing those on their kids. And if you're a teenager, I'm going to help you out for a second. I don't hardly ever do this, so you're welcome right now. Parents, if every fashionable outfit signifies like a whore's wardrobe, if every MP3 is a celebration of decadence, if every movie is like softcore porn, if every potential boyfriend or girlfriend is a sexual predator, then something is wrong. Something is wrong. And you know me. I'm not soft on any of this stuff. I mean, if I had a daughter, I think every boy is a sexual predator. I'd clean the shotgun every time. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, she's in the room. <laughs> yeah, it works. You know, I, you know, they would know. But many times we are actually condemning ourselves rather than helping our kids navigate with truth and grace. Because kids will encounter things in life. And what God wants is he wants you and I innocent. He doesn't want us naive. He wants your kids innocent not naive. So judge as you want to be judged. So we're balancing the scales. We're protection. Secondly, you deal with your own stuff first. 
You deal with your own stuff first. You make sure you got your own sins taken care of before you start worrying about everybody else's around you. Uh, Matthew 7, again, starting in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's another set of verses taken completely out of context because Jesus didn't tell you to ignore the specks in other people's eyes. He said you take the log out of your own eye first, and then you help other people take the speck out of theirs. You know, and, and as long as we're losing the battle over a specific sin in our life, why don't we just need to keep our mouth shut a lot of the time. You know, not, not that you excuse or defend sin in others, but there is no wisdom in joining the chorus of people who are condemning something when you yourself have a closet full of that exact same sin. And it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. In Romans chapter 7, Paul details his own struggles, but he was bold in his exposure of sin and error. And you and I can be too, but not if something has us by the throat. And this is really important to grasp if you struggle with the secret sin that you think nobody knows about. Because if you have a battle and it takes place in secret, you've got no right pointing out the public sins of others around you. To do so makes matters worse. And everything has a way of coming out. Over and over you see this in public and private figures. You know, don't be one of them. This is one of the reasons we talk about gospel community. You need to have people around you you share your life with so you don't have these secret things you struggle with. You have people that come alongside you and help you deal through them. Don't secretly struggle. Talk to somebody. Walk with somebody through it. And the third thing is don't judge if God hasn't clearly spoken. Make sure if you're going to make a judgment about something that it agrees and matches with God. I mean, a lot of people are like, I'm going to make God just agree with me. That's not how it works. Don't be in the awkward position of you know, disagreeing with God when he doesn't purposely call something a sin, and we do. Like, people do that all the time, all the time. It's bizarre. Some of the harshest judgments that Christians want to throw out around us are in areas where the Bible seems the most silent and the most unclear. There are areas where the scriptures lay down a general principle without spelling things out with specific applications, and that leaves a lot of room for freedom. It also leaves a lot of area for disagreement as well. I'll give you an example. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're to treat those accordingly. Now, that's a principle. It's left to us to figure out how that applies. For some of us, you know, that means you avoid all tobacco. You don't cigarettes or pipes or cigars. For others, it's like you don't drink light beer because that is a sin, by the way, light beer. Um, for others, you know, it means you avoid diet drinks and refined sugars. For others, it means vigorous exercise. It means proper rest. For me, it means I stay away from vegetables and mushrooms and beets and cauliflower. Because this is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It has no place among the holy place. All right. Now, when that verse was written, it specifically uh, referred to not having sex with a temple prostitute. Specifically. Now, because that's probably not a problem you struggle with because you don't have temple prostitutes in your neighborhood. And if you do, wow. Okay. You know. So you got to figure out how does, that temp- how does that principle still apply today because it does. And there's room for differing applications in that. I was once at this uh, seminar thing, and a guy got up. I had no idea that, well, this was going to happen, but he got up and he uses that verse about the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he starts railing the whole time against all of the uses of tobacco in our culture. 
Now, I say that to tell you that this guy who was rowing against it weighed probably 500 to 550 pounds. And I'm thinking, I think that verse might mean something else for you. You know, I, I don't know. We put others in a dangerous place when we judge others in an area where God has not spoken definitively. We become like the Pharisees. We end up acting so holy about certain things that God doesn't care about at all. And, and we stop doing the things that he cares the most about. Here's a good principle for you. If anything got left out of the Bible, it was not left out by mistake. God isn't rushing to meet a publisher's deadline. He doesn't wish he had a more careful editor, you. You know, he's not looking for a rewrite. He doesn't need to put rules and regulations and standards, anything else you wish was included in there, in there. Okay, he doesn't need that from you. It just seems the more passionate that we are about an issue, the harder it is to let those things go. And I'll tell you, by far the harshest emails and letters I have ever received personally have been something that got triggered by a tradition or a preference or a topic that the writer sent it to me thought so strongly about, but the Bible really said nothing about. Even back in the early church, the most fiercest divisions in the early church these, of these Christians were not over things spelled out clearly. They were over certain practices and, and competing areas of interpretation where the Bible was silent or it granted a whole lot of freedom. You know, we seldom fight over things today that are black and white. I mean, it's becoming more and more common. Like, hey, the Bible clearly says this. Well, no, it doesn't. Let's fight over that. And we kind of do that today, and that's kind of sad. But a lot of areas, you know, things are black and white. We don't fight over things. They're just straight black and white. And one of the things Eric Trufruti, one of our elders, said to me about two years ago, we were dealing with this issue with somebody, and I was really, I, I was really angry about something with, with somebody. And we, he sat down, and he said, when, when unsure, we must always err on the side of grace. When unsure, we always err on the side of grace. And so what I want to do is briefly talk to you about the most misunderstood aspect of judging biblically. This is how we evaluate and judge the non-Christian world around us. Because it is here that a lot of Christians make some well-intentioned mistakes. We will start to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. And again, it's usually you know, trying to take a stand for righteousness and, and that kind of stuff. But judging non-Christians by Christian standards puts the cart before the horse, so to speak. I mean, even if we eventually convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards or we can successfully legislate that without bringing people into relationship with Jesus, it means nothing. All you do is populate hell with very nice people and very moral people, and we don't want that. We want people to follow Jesus. I mean, more important, the Bible actually forbids us to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We're like, yeah, exactly. Paul says this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, of Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, or a drunkard or a swindler, I don't even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get to call sin, sin. It doesn't mean you don't stand for righteousness and try to bring about truth and grace and all of that. It doesn't mean that people who don't believe in God don't have consequences for their lives. It means that we are supposed to leave their judgments to God and God alone. And we focus on the family of God. That's what we do. And we can learn a lot from the early Christians. And you may not like some of this, but the early Christians, they lived in a culture under a government system riddled with what the Bible would call sin. Marriage is held in low esteem. Sexual excess is approved. Infant side, killing children, was an accepted form of family planning. Hmm, sound a lot like today? Yeah. And so what does the government do to try and get people not to look at all the issues of their governmental system? They have sports. They throw people in the Colosseum. That's what they do. If we just do this, people will enjoy this and not really look at what's going on over here. Is that what's going on today? Yes! 
How many of you love hearing about entertainment? Oh, what's, you know, Ben Affleck is playing Batman. Oh, I'm going to get very angry about that, and I'm going to write a blog, and oh! They abort a million babies a year in our country. We're like, oh, no big deal. Look at Syria. Look what's going on over there. Everything trying to get you to look. Benghazi. All these. Look the other way. Don't look what's going on over here. Let's have football season. Yay! It's crazy. It's crazy. We're doing the exact same things. And if you look in this, as for Christians in this culture, there's no charitable deductions. There's no property tax exemptions. Freedom of speech protections? No way. Not at all. All you had was the ominous threat that at some point, in some way, Christianity is going to be outlawed and believers jailed and their leaders martyred. That's what's going to happen. Yet the New Testament is strangely silent when it comes to offering harsh judgments and condemnation of the Roman government, its leaders, or its soldiers. I mean, don't misunderstand me. It does talk about societal decadence in general, but it usually does so in the context of reminding God's people that they were no longer to live that way, that we were supposed to be different. And the reason is simple. The church understood that their job was not to condemn the people around them. Their job was to win them over, to live in such a way that they saw who Jesus is and the difference that he makes in our lives. So, how do you judge? I'm going to give you a couple things in this. Uh, You evaluate and protect, and you discern and restore. That's what we do. If you refuse to judge, you miss out on truth. If you judge inappropriately, you pile judgment on yourself. So, judging can be dangerous on both sides, so we've got to do it rightly. It's like nuclear fuel at the power plant. It's great. It gives us lots of power, but if it's handled incorrectly, it extracts a high price. It can hurt everyone if handled improperly. And so we must remember that our ultimate purpose in judging is not condemnation. Our job is to evaluate and protect or discern and restore depending on the situation and people involved. So I'll give you two things as we end this. How do we judge spiritual leaders? How do we judge spiritual leaders? The purpose of our judging is to evaluate and protect. The goal is to keep wolves and sheep's clothing from raiding the flock. So you look at a leader's message. You look at their actions. You look at, the, at their spiritual fruit. It's all fair game. I know a lot of times today, spiritual leaders will be like, I'm the leader. You don't get to judge me. How dare you judge me? You get to judge me. You get to look at my life and the things that I say and if my life is actually measuring up to the things that I'm actually saying. You get that right. Don't send me emails this week, okay? In Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, like Paul says, I myself, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. A spiritual leader's life and their teaching, if it fails to match up with the scriptures, we don't help anyone by staying silent. We must point out the inconsistencies and the error of their ways. But even so, it's done with the eye to the things we've already looked at, the principles of judgment. You remain humble in how you do it. You remember your own failings. And, and we only judge where God has clearly spoken. I mean, there's always going to be differences of opinion and style and theological distinctives. Those are left to God to arbitrate. You let him do those. And I think on that day when he does, we're going to realize how much we all missed it. I think we will, especially the part about patiently bearing with one another and forgiving one another as we've been forgiven. I think we're like, yeah, I need to do that a little bit more. Okay, the second thing is how do we judge fellow Christians? How do you judge fellow Christians? Again, the purpose is always to discern and restore, 
to discern and restore. In contrast to the prohibition of judging non-Christians, we have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. The purpose is always to root out sin and error in our lives and restore our brothers and sisters. You've got to look to yourself first. Get the log out of your eye. Avoid making judgments about things God doesn't care about. But when the scriptures are clear, you don't ignore sin. Refusing to do so in an attempt to avoid being labeled as judgmental, it's not an act of grace. It's an act of disobedience. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you've got to make a judgment about that. What's a transgression? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So following Eric's advice, you judge with grace. And if your judgments lead you into places of personal attacks or bitterness or raging anger, something has gone terribly wrong. You know, this old cliche that people like to make fun of, and it's like, love the sin or hate the sin. Well, that makes no sense. How can you love one and hate the other? They're, they're, they're tied together. I, that's not really a stupid cliche because everybody actually does that already. Just look at, you, look at yourself. There are times when you're really honest about the things you're doing. You're like, man, I hate my sin. I hate what it is doing to me. I hate these things. And the reason you hate it is because you actually love yourself. That's one of the primary reasons we hate our sins. They dishonor God and they hurt and destroy us personally. I hate to see that happen to good people like you and me. Whatever. That's a joke, by the way. Um, so some people say, no, you don't understand. I really, I just hate myself. I, no, you don't. If you hated yourself, you wouldn't think about yourself all the time. You'd be like, oh, look, I'm so terrible on you. All you do is focus on yourself. You focus on yourself because you love yourself all the time. If you hate yourself, you wouldn't spend much time, so much time thinking about you, but you do. This concept of self-love is so naturally and deeply ingrained that Jesus uses that as the basis of how we're supposed to love others. In Matthew 22, verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, God wants us to judge in the same way we judge and love ourselves. You know, how, how often you, you spend some time thinking about yourself, maybe you spend some time thinking about Jesus and other people instead of thinking about yourself so much. And then what we do in other people's lives when we come alongside them, we boldly call sin, sin, but we respond with, a, with an abundance of grace and mercy for their lives. See, it is a myth that Christians shouldn't judge. We can and we should. We just need to make sure we are judging the right things in the right way. And we must have a proper understanding of God's grace freely given. That must be a part of all that we do and all that we say. Because none of the judging that we're allowed to do is to make more moral people. That's not why it's there. Morality doesn't bring Jesus. Jesus brings morality. So the point in all that we do is Jesus. Jesus is always the point. So you love him first. You love yourself last. And that makes judging a lot more profitable because you're going to be doing it the way he intends for you to do it. You love him first, focus on him first, others, and then yourself last. See, this is the whole idea that we are a people who have been steeped in sin. And our God came and our God died for you and I. This is one of the reasons we go to communion every week. Communion is the place where our sins were judged. They were laid upon Jesus. And now you and I get to live as a people in freedom and grace and hope and restoration. We get to become a people of redemption. And in understanding that we have been redeemed, we, in offering certain judgments in certain ways around us, can offer redemption to those around us as well. I mean, discern, restore, evaluate, protect. That's what we are supposed to be about. We don't get the right to condemn. We get to write the preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share his hope 
and his grace with those around us. The band's going to come up, and as they do, we invite you guys to take communion, uh, to remember that, that your sins and mine were laid upon him at that cross, that judgment of you and I who believe in Christ was taken care of at that place, at that moment, and Jesus rose to walk in new life, which he invites all of us to be able to live and walk in that new life as well be some deacons and elders in the back and if you guys need prayer for anything maybe you feel like you've been judged harshly or you've been judged too much or maybe you feel like you judge other people around you and you want to you know calm that down a little bit they would love to pray with you they would love to talk to you about that if you need prayer for anything they'd love to pray with you there's uh, offering boxes in the side wall in the back we give because god gave so much to us giving then is simply part of our worship so you have the opportunity every week and there's food and stuff in the back i believe this service there's some maple cookies my wife made they taste just like pancakes but better because she loves you. <laughs> Grab a cookie, meet somebody else, because again, if you have something in your life that you struggle with, you should not struggle with it alone. And so we do that. We put food out there so you guys can connect to one another. Because yes, Jesus saves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. But you are intended to live in community with other believers so that your life can be what it was meant to be. You're not meant to do it alone. You're meant to do it with other Christians around you. And that is how our lives can begin to change because we can hold each other up. We can keep each other accountable. We can actually live the scriptures as he calls us to live the scriptures. Guys, Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. It is one of the reasons he wants you to judge things but judge correctly. And so I encourage you, learn how to judge correctly. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would be those who understand what it means to honor you, to honor you in the way that we live and the way that we make judgments. Father, sometimes in the back of our mind, we will see something, we'll instantly make a judgment about it. And I ask that you would stop us from thinking that there's something wrong with that. But instead, I ask that you would switch it so when we see that, we would instantly think, how can I bring redemption to this situation? How can I protect and restore or evaluate to do what you call us to do correctly so that your gospel is furthered and your kingdom is made better known. So your children stop being jerks to everybody around them and we simply start to live as you called us to live, bringing truth in a lot of tough situations, bringing hope to places that are hopeless. And in all things, showing all people who you are. Because you are the God that is alive. You're the God who cares. You're the God who sought out. And though our sins deserve judgment, you paid for them all. To restore us to who we need to be. Have us begin to understand that in every area and aspect of our lives. Because you are the only God who is able to keep us from falling. To keep us where we need to be. In your great and glorious and good hands. Have us as your children realize that you have been clinging and hanging on to us. And that our judgment should reflect the goodness of our good God. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.